You know, I, I think uh, a lot of you know that uh, I write out uh, my sermons, you know, I, I, I type them out, and uh, I can always tell how long they're going to be um, by how many pages I have. Uh, we're in big trouble, so I just need you to know that, so buckle up. Let me begin by asking this question, what is the church? Well, what is the church? Well, you say, that's easy. It's, it's where we are right now. We're at church. And, and that definition implies that church is a location. For example, you're driving down the 105 bypass on Thursday afternoon, and your kids say, oh, oh, look, there's the church. Is that right? Or you, you may have looked as you drove in this morning, you may have thought, man, the church is, is, is full. Again, referring to a place. Is that right? Is Church, simply a location. You know, look up churches in the yellow pages and you'll get telephone numbers and addresses. Is church a location? A, a building, bricks and mortar, steeples and stained glass, doors and windows, chairs and pulpits. I'm going to suggest that there may be some element of truth to the idea of location, but church is not ultimately location. And then very astutely, some of you say, no, the church is not location. When I say we're at church, what I mean is church is what we do on Sunday mornings. We're going to church, yes, location, but so that we can do church. So you may have said to your kids, now this morning it's time to go to church. Speaking of this Sunday morning service, you see that definition implies activity. Church is, is when we gather on Sunday mornings and we sing and, and pray and, and read the Bible and listen to her like a really good sermon. And, and oh yeah, don't forget the, the offering. Church is where we go to give our very hard-earned money. Is that right? Is church simply activity doing stuff? I am going to suggest that there may be some element of truth to the idea of activity, but church is not ultimately activity. What is the church? And some of you think, I don't always know where you're going with your very silly introduction, Scott, but I think I got this one. The church is not location or a building. The church is not even activity. The church is the people, and you'd be right. Good. So let's begin with the definition of the word. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. If you know Spanish, you know the Spanish word for church is iglesia, simply a transliteration of the Greek word ekklesia. That word is a compound word of two other Greek words, ek, which means out, and kaleo, which means to call. So some of you have heard that the word church refers to a group of called out ones, ones called out, which is true enough. But what you may not know is the word was actually used before the church was born in the book of Acts. You know, it's not like Paul or even Jesus made up the word. Uh, most often it was used of, to speak of an assembly or a, or a congregation. In fact, it's sometimes even translated that way. And that tells us some very important things about the word. The church assembles in a place, huh? So, so that does imply location, doesn't it? Now, again, it was a group of, of people who shared some affinity, and, and they were called out to carry out certain purposes. Huh. So that does imply certain 
activity, doesn't it? For example, a sports team such as like, I don't know, the Denver Broncos could be called an ecclesia. A merchant's guild could be called an ecclesia, a group of people you see who, get, who band together to further their, their trade. An illustration of that is, is seen in Acts chapter 19, to which I referred last week. Paul had been preaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus where the prominent deity was Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And so the city merchants, specifically the silversmiths, they made quite the living selling these little silver idols of Artemis. When Paul showed up preaching Jesus, massive conversions to Christianity were happening and thus having a a negative impact on the sale of those little silver statuettes. So, so a silversmith named Demetrius called together his associates uh, in a meeting to, to determine what to do about Paul and this Jesus. I love that part. I wonder if that's, I wonder if everybody, anybody's ever called a meeting to talk about me and my Jesus or, or you. Well, they call this meeting, this meeting is called an ecclesia in Acts 19, verse 32. Because what you have is a, 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 a gathering of people called out for a very specific purpose, called out to do something. Please notice location and activity. And so from all of that, I would suggest then that the church of Jesus Christ is a group of ones called out by God from this sinful world to gather, to assemble as believers in Jesus for specific purposes. You see, we arrive this morning at the final verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And and, and yes, we're actually going to finish the book today because I'm going to preach really long. But these closing verses of letters in general, in this letter, verses 7 to 18, you know, we usually skip them, right? After all, it is just Paul's final greetings, just a list of names. I suggested last week, it's just kind of like, et cetera, et cetera, very truly yours, sincerely, to a letter. So let's just kind of skim through it and move on to some very important stuff. But as we have slowed down, we have found some incredible truth in this closing and its list of names. We found, for example, that God cares about the individual. Yes, the church is made up of of people, lots of of individuals, but Jesus doesn't just care about the all, although he does. He cares about, well, he cares about you. You see, the Spirit has gifted you, and no matter how important or unimportant, no matter how visible or invisible you feel, as you serve, God is using you in his church. And he notices. We also saw last week, by way of an incredible illustration, that God is uniting different individuals, different people under one banner 
into one new humanity. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and, and freemen, men, women, poor and, and rich, educated and uneducated. It does not matter what walls we build that, to separate us. Christianity, you see, is in the business of tearing walls down that divide us and bringing us together into one body called the church. And all that then brings us to our text this morning, Colossians 4, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. And as we read it, you're going to see that word church a couple of times. And I want you to remember, as we read it, that the church is a group of ones called out together for some specific purposes. So as we read it, I want you to catch this idea of location and activity. You with me? So let's look at it. Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 and following say this. Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And for your part, read my letter, Colossian church, that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed in the ministry which you have, uh, which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that incredible? Okay, I have a confession to make. Last week when I said I had no idea what I was going to say about this passage, I actually did have some idea. You see, I had read the passage a few times, and I kept seeing that word church. Church. And I want you to know something. I want you to know that I love the church. I want you to know that I love this church. I want you to know that the church is incredibly important. I know that it is really popular today to bash the church. Come on, let's jump on the bandwagon and let's talk some really bad things about how bad the church really is. But can I tell you, I love the church. And the church is incredibly important. And I believe that I'm in good company to hold it in highest regard. Listen to these verses. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I, I, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, this rock of your confession, that thou art the Christ, I will build my church, and the very gates of Hades will not overpower. Listen, I'm going to build my church, Jesus said, and nothing can stop its advance, not even hell itself, not even people bashing it. You're not going to stop it, no matter how lousy you think it is. Now, 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 notice he says, this is his church. Now, 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 how so? Well, in Acts 20, 28, Paul had gathered some elders from Ephesus to say some things to them. And he says this, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of who? Of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I, blood, I love that part. Please notice that he refers to it as the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who shed his blood? Jesus. Just in case there's any confusion, Jesus is God. Which tells me that when he bought the church with his own blood, that was a very, very steep price. Because the church is incredibly important. 
Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives. Jesus Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. High, holy price. Jesus loves the church. And so I am in good company to love it too, imperfect as she is. And I am not talking about bricks and mortar. I am not talking about songs and sermons. I am not even talking about location and activity. I am talking about people. I am talking about you. I want you to know that I love this church. I love you. And I believe that you are incredibly important, made so by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is this challenge facing the, the church today. Many are, are leaving her. They are saying things like, I'm a believer in Jesus, so I belong to him. I, I don't really need the church. She's so old. She's so out of touch. She's so antiquated. I, I don't need the church. In other words, I don't need location and activity. And I want you to know that I strongly and biblically disagree. You need the church and the church needs you. In other words, you can't be ones called out for a purpose if you are not called together to do something. While the church is people, it exists to assemble and to work. So in this text, we see some truths about this location and activity. In fact, here's, here's the outline that I'm going to follow. The, the church gathers, which speaks of location. The, the church learns, which speaks of location and activity. The church serves, again, location and activity. The church prays and grows, location and activity. And will you please look at that list for me? Say, I don't need the church. Well, you can't do these things, at least very well, unless you're in the church. The church Gather. You can't do that by yourself unless you're schizophrenic. The, the church learns. You can't do that very well, at least by yourself. The church serves. You can't do that by your, well, unless you're serving yourself. That's the problem. And the church, and the church prays. For what? Well, for me. That's the problem. Now, before I go... Further, this is not intended, this list on the screen is not intended to be an exhaustive list. I am simply pointing out some characteristics of the church from this text. This is not all the church is, nor all the church does. For, for example, at the beginning of this chapter, we learned that the church takes the gospel out in order to make outsiders insiders with us, meaning the church evangelizes. But, but, but this morning, we're simply going to look at Paul's expectations for the church gathered in this, his closing, starting with the church gathers. And now again, it is true. I want to be very clear about this. The church is more than Sunday morning. I get that. But, but there is this movement afoot that says the church, the church doesn't really need to gather. I don't really need the gathered assembly. I disagree. We see here that Paul expected the church to assemble. That's inherent in the definition of the word ecclesia, a group of ones called out to be together. For example, 
Did you know that 12 of Paul's 13 letters were, were written to churches, groups of churches, or pastors of churches? Only one, Philemon, was written to an individual, and even then we're going to find that the, 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 the church in Colossae met in Philemon's house. So, so, so Paul's letters were written to churches. Well, you look at them. Romans was written to the church at Rome. First and second Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth. Galatians to the churches, that's group, in Galatia. Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. Philippians to the church at Philippi. Colossians to the church at Colossae. First and second Thessalonians to the church at Thessalonica. There's even a, here a letter to the church at, uh, at Laodicea that we don't have. And you say, okay, okay, we, we get it, do we? Do we? Do we understand how important the church is? Paul further wrote three letters that we call pastoral epistles. That is, letters to pastors of churches. And they are first and second Timothy and then Titus. And he tells us in 1 Timothy 3 why he wrote that letter. I also think it's why he wrote Titus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write, so that you will know how one, you know, a called one, ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support for the truth. I'm not going to expand on that now, but even the pastoral epistles written to individuals were written for the church. Don't get caught up in this bandwagon of church bashing. No, we're not perfect because you're in it, and so am I. So in Colossians 4, 15 and 16, Paul sends some greetings to the church in Laodicea, specifically the one that meets uh, in the house of Nympha. Now, there, now it could be that there's, there's more than one house uh, in which the church in Laodicea meets. Greet, he could be saying, greet the church in Laodicea, especially that part that meets in Nympha's house. That's possible, but actually it's more likely it was such a small church that it was small enough to fit in one house when they gathered together and they gathered in Nympha's house. I mean, we don't know who she is. She's only mentioned here. She was likely, most surmise, some wealthy woman, maybe even a widow since we have no mention of her husband, who had a house large enough for the church to, in which the church could gather. Men house. So let me now take a little aside because we have this mention of the house church. It is true that the early church often met in homes. For example, I'm just going to put them on the screen for you. Last week, we saw that part of the church of Jerusalem met in the house of the mother of John Mark. Remember, her name was, was Mary. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, we find that they met to break bread from house to house. But here's a question for you to consider, just some for you to consider. Is this the only time and place that they met? Did they only meet in houses? Priscilla and Aquila often had various churches meet in their homes in successive cities in which they lived. Ephesus and Rome, for example, and Colossae. Uh, it's likely we'll find that the church met in Philemon's house. In, in Philippi, the church met in Lydia's house. In Corinth, the church met in Gaius' house. In Sincrea, the church met in Phoebe's house. I'm amazed at the number of women who opened their homes to the church. 
ought to tell us something. And so we look at people look at this list and well-intentioned but perhaps misguided people take these passages to assume that the church should always and only continue to meet in homes. They go further. I have books on my shelves in my office that say, church buildings are wrong. They're sinful. After all, the church is not the building. It's the people, right? So to that, I, I would say a few things. First, while it is true the early church often met in homes, we find in the book of Acts, if we read the book of Acts, that they also met in the temple, specifically in Solomon's colonnade. I don't know if you know this, but the temple was a fairly large and ornate building. My point is, is that they didn't just meet in homes. There were, there were so many believers that they often met together in the temple. In fact, an early Jewish historian named Josephus, who was prone to exaggeration, I understand that, but he says that the church grew to be about 50,000 people by 70 AD when Jerusalem fell. 50,000 people, I call that a megachurch. Second, they met in homes because there were no church buildings yet. That's shocking. They met in, the fact that they met in homes does not constitute a command that we only meet in homes. You understand that? The fact that they met in homes, because there were no church buildings yet, does not constitute a command that we only meet in homes. If you're going to suggest that, I've got something for you to consider. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is traveling through Troas. And when he gets to Troas, he meets in the home where he is preaching. And he got a little long-winded. And there up in a window is a guy named Eutychus. And Eutychus falls asleep, which is always an encouragement to me. I mean, if they can fall asleep when Paul's preaching, I don't feel so bad about it when some of you do. And so Eutychus falls and he hits the ground and breaks his neck. And Paul goes, great. That messed up the service. And so he goes over and raises him from the dead and then preaches all night long till the morning. So if we want to get our, our understanding of the church from narrative, how many of you are up for me preaching until morning? That's kind of what I thought. By the way, we do continue to meet in homes in things called life groups. I would suggest to you that we are more like the early church in that regard, large gatherings and small gatherings. Third, I do agree that the church is the people and not a building. Therefore, our emphasis um, should not be on brick and mortar, but on people. I understand that sometimes churches have missed their focus and, and start concentrating on building but inasmuch as buildings serve the church, inasmuch as that they serve people, there is nothing wrong with them. Buildings are inherently amoral. That means neither good nor bad. They are simply a tool to serve us. And so I believe that we should be good stewards of the buildings that we build, not building excessively, but, but tools so that they serve this church body well. It's why we're building now, because we need more room. We're not building to build a bigger building, but we're building to build a bigger church. And I don't apologize for that. The book of Acts, 
has the number of believers increasing rapidly. And the author, we know it's Luke now, records the number of people in the church many times. 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 different numbers that he provides for us. So that's my goal. It's interesting. Just one other quick, well, just a quick thought. Those who argue that we should only meet in homes, and they base that on historical narrative, I, I, I don't know, I get a little cynical and I want to ask them, yes, and they also walked to those homes. Do you? Ah, you drive. Because you see, cars did not exist then either. They're simply tools to serve us. I think you get the point. Back to the text. Here's the point I really want to make. The church gathered. They gathered in Laodicea. They gathered, uh, excuse me, in Laodicea in Nympha's home. They gathered in Colossae at Philemon's home. They, they gathered because that's what groups of called out ones do. They are an ecclesia. They are an assembly. And, and I also want to strongly suggest that we gather because we desperately need each other. People, we need community. We need the relationships that we enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot do this alone. And so let me say very gently but very firmly, let me say very gently but firmly, an hour on Sunday morning will not cut it. If you just slip in on Sunday morning and slip out on Sunday morning and, and do your hour of church per week and you say, I can't get connected there might be a reason for that. We must be involved in each other's lives throughout the week, gathering in homes, spending time together. I am going to talk about this more tonight, and I'm trusting that you understand that the church is more than an hour on Sunday morning because I need an hour tonight, not to preach, but the whole thing. For now, we understand that the church gathers, and Paul assumes some purposes now for our gathering in these next few verses and brings us to our second point. These will go much more quickly. The church, number two, learns. You see, he expected his letter to the Colossians to be read to the gathered assembly in Colossae. He expected his letter to the Laodiceans to be read to the gathered assembly at Laodicea. In fact, he said it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This was his expectation. And I suggested a couple of weeks ago that the implication from these verses is that Tychicus, who delivered the letters, would likely answer questions and provide commentary on the letters. <laughs> you see, we find in Acts chapter 2 that when the early church was planted, they continued to meet together and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, that's community, uh, to the breaking of bread. That's likely a reference to communion and to, and to prayer. They gathered together to grow. They gathered together to learn. They, they, they read, and I'm going to say this very intentionally, they read God's word. They studied it. They grew by it. They prayed together. Now, I, I just said very intentionally, we, we, they and we gathered together to study God's word. How is it, how, how is it that they viewed Paul's letters as inspired scripture? Did, did they? It's an important question. And I wouldn't ask it if I didn't know the answer. It's a very interesting passage that appears at the end 
another letter closing at the end of 2 Peter. Peter is writing to Christian Jews who had been scattered because of the persecution against the church in, in Jerusalem. And in the closing of this letter, he writes these words. Look at this. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, that is the, the coming of Christ, be diligent to be found by him when he comes in peace, spotless and blameless. And in regard to the patience of our Lord, the fact that he's not come as salvation. This is our beloved Brother Paul, according to the wisdom given you, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in, in which are, are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. I mean, so Paul's writing these letters, and, and you're reading them, but some people are distorting them, as they do also to the rest of scriptures. Do, do you see that? There was an understanding by this time that the letters that Paul wrote were Scripture. Unbelievable. By the way, scholars suggest that 2 Peter was written somewhere between 65 and 68 A.D., right after Paul had been executed in 64 A.D. And so when he refers to Paul's letters, he's talking about letters that had already been, been written and were now being circulated, much like Paul tells the church and the churches in Colossae and Laodicea, circulate my letters, share them. And so Colossians, share the letter that I wrote to you with the Laodiceans and, and with the church in Boone, North Carolina called ABF. Laodiceans. They're going to share their letter with, with you. And you start going, wait a, minute. wait a minute. I remember when I was in elementary school that we, we memorized the 27 letters of the New Testament. And I don't remember a Laodiceans. What is that letter? What, what, I, I don't, lots of guesses about that. Not going to get into all those guesses, but most generally agree that this is a letter that we now do not have. And, 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 you, and you go, oh, Paul wrote a letter that we don't, we don't have? We lost some scripture. Don't let it bother you. Paul wrote lots of letters. He wrote lots of things. We don't have them all. For example, did you know that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians? He wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth. We only have two. And this letter to the Laodicea, we don't have it. Did we lose then some of the Bible? No. Not everything that Paul wrote was inspired. We don't have his grocery lists either. If they were in fact inspired, we would have them. Do you understand what I just said? If they were inspired, we would have them. Because I happen to believe that the God who by his spirit was big enough to inspire certain letters, he was big enough to preserve them for our use. If they weren't inspired, we simply don't have them. Very quickly then, church gathers, the church learns, and third, the church serves. Look at verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. A couple of thoughts about that. First, Archippus only appears here and in Philemon, verse 2. There we find out that he was also a recipient of that letter called Philemon. And that's all we know about this dude. 
But here we find that Paul, at the end of this letter, calls him out publicly. Now, now this could be a public encouragement to complete the work, but it also could be a public reprimand. Archippus finished the job. That would have been a little bit challenging. How'd you like... How'd you like for me to stand up here and call you out by name and say, do the work? Maybe I should. You see, because whether or not, whether or not this was a public encouragement or a public reprimand, Paul calls him out by name and says, you've received a ministry in the Lord, now do the work. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, you have received a ministry in the Lord. You have been gifted by His Spirit. Now do the work. We've been given a responsibility to fulfill within this church, whether we gather or whether we're separated in different parts throughout the community, do the work. You've been gifted. You said... I don't, I don't, I no, I haven't. You know, I just show up for Sunday mornings for this hour and for the show. Then, then you see the church's location and this particular activity. And I want to say very gently, you don't understand the church. Because the church is all of us. Hands and feet and ears and eyes and noses and, and, and mouths variously gifted to serve one another. Not just on Sunday, but again, we're in whatever context the church meets. And my encouragement to you this morning, and if I could take the time to call you all by name, I would say to you, fulfill your ministry, the one that you received in the Lord. Peter says it this way in his first letter. As each one, that's everybody, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then I think that he goes on to divide the spiritual gifts into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. you ever stop to think that when you use your gifts, you're glorifying Jesus? Have you ever stopped to think that when you're not using your gifts, you're not glorifying Jesus? Because to him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the church gathers, the church learns, the church serves, and finally the church prays and grows. And this is my conclusion, verse 18. Up to this point, Paul had been dictating his letter to an amanuensis. That's a secretary, which is what he often did. And as he often did, he then, as he gets to the end, he took the pen in his hand at the end of the letter to sign off. Now, don't think signature. They didn't typically do that. Remember, he's already identified himself as the author at the beginning of the letter. He simply takes up the pen and writes the ending. Apparently, the penmanship on this parchment Um, changed enough for the initial readers to know, up, new writer. And perhaps his writing, perhaps his writing was known by this time. Regardless, there there are other passages which indicate this practice. 1 Corinthians 16, the end of that letter. The the greeting is in my own hand, and then he does sign it, Paul. 
Galatians 6, see what large letters, and maybe that's what was distinctive about it. I, I am writing to you with my hand. Philemon 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. And then first, or Second Thessalonians 3, catch this, don't, don't miss this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is the way I write. So this, this taking up the pen and writing the closing in a way that somehow authenticated or gave authority to his letters. And so he does this to, in this letter to the Colossians. But notice, when he writes, he says, remember my imprisonment. Because as he, as he takes up the, up the pen to, to, to write his closing... And, 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 he, and he actually probably takes it up in his left hand. You say, how do you know that? Figure it out. He probably takes it up in his left hand that is shackled to a Roman soldier. And he begins to write, and his imprisonment comes to mind. And he asks them, will, will you remember my chains? Would you just remember, feel badly for me? No. I've been in prison for the sake of the gospel. Pray for me. Because back in verse 2, he said, the church is devoted to prayer. This is a reminder to pray for people who are suffering for the gospel. And finally, as we close the letter, Paul gives this final brief benediction. Grace be with you. It doesn't get any better than that. Grace is all that is needed to grow into the full maturity that Paul desires for his readers. Remember, I suggested that Colossians 1.28 is the theme of this letter where he says, we proclaim him, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. I want you to know that my goal as a pastor, your pastor, is to present you complete, to present you mature in Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus because that's what our church does as she gathers in community, as she learns and as she serves. She grows in grace. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I thank you for this church called Alliance Bible Fellowship. And as much as I love her, I know that my love for her pales in comparison and significance to your love because you sent your son to die for this church, to purchase her with your blood. And so would you... Would you complete the work that you've begun? Would you mature us to become more and more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? Would you, would you forgive us for treating this, even this gathering, but this church, would you forgive us for treating it so lightly, flippantly, cynically, negatively? Would you help us to love her? 
serve her, to, to learn with her, to gather with her, and to grow in her. In Christ's name, amen.